This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I am your host, Brett Gilliland, and today I'm excited to talk to uh, Duncan McPherson, who is a, uh, he's an author, he's a speaker, he is a CEO, and he's calling in today from Canada. So Duncan, good to be with you today. How are you? Hey, Brett. Uh, great to be here. Thanks very much. I really appreciate you uh, you being with us today, and our listeners, I know, are going to get a, a lot of stuff from you, and, and uh, we've connected on, on social media and and talk about your company, the Pareto Systems. We all know what the 80-20 rule is, so I'm excited to get uh, dive more into that. But why don't you tell our listeners, Duncan, what's uh, helped make you the man you are today? Well, I appreciate that, and uh, quite frankly, any success that I have is through my interactions with our clients. Our clients are very successful knowledge-for-profit professionals, and I get as much out of those relationships as they do. Uh, I've been saying for years that the people who like us the most actually need us the least, if you know what I mean. So when we interact with them, I've been saying for years that creativity stems from my ability to conceal my sources. And my sources are our clients who show us what works and what doesn't. And I just refine and optimize from those to have the process that we have today. So that's where it comes from. Got it. And have you, uh, I mean, what was your background? Obviously, you're a hockey fan and an author and a speaker and all that, but what was your build up to doing what you're doing today? First of all, I, I've got a picture. It's in one of my kids' bedrooms. And you might not like this, but it's that picture of Bobby Orr's famous goal. Oh, yeah. Um, now, you remember what team uh, the Bruins beat, right? I do remember that. Do you remember the goalie on the St. Louis Blues? I, I do not, no. Okay, so this is where I'll take you down the rabbit hole. So that was Glenn Hall was the goalie, and okay. Noel Picard Noel Picard was the defenseman who tripped Bobby Orr as he scored that game-winning goal. So I, I'm a big fan of Bobby Orr. I'm a big fan of the Blues, too. I mean, any team that Gritsky played with and, of course, Hall and Oates and you had many, many great players on that team, but that's such a, um, a powerful symbol for hockey. And what's really crazy is that that happened 48 years ago, and that just sort of wow. confirms how fast time flies. That's the hockey part. I'm from Canada. It's part of my DNA. I can't help it. Exactly. So were you successful on the business side? I mean, what was your business path like uh, before you got into Pareto, uh, your Pareto company? Well, I had my own business uh, that was unrelated to financial services and, and the consulting firm, but I had many friends that were in the financial services arena, and I started helping them in their business and started to become very fascinated with the concept of a knowledge-for-profit professional. So that's somebody who thinks for a living. You know, if you think of the book uh, Selling the Invisible by Harry Beckwith, and other areas like, you know, consulting, legal, accounting, where there's a consultative nature to the relationship. 
very powerful. So I became fascinated by that and about 25 years ago started embarking, you know, on that journey of consulting and over those years, as mentioned, just sort of developed and refined a philosophy and a process that caters to the elite in that sector. Got it. So I know, obviously, you're the co-founder and CEO of Pareto Systems. And and for those of the people that don't know what the Pareto Principle are, I'm, I'm assuming most people listening to this know what it is. But could you, could you give us a deep dive on what the Pareto Principles really are? Yeah, of course. So first of all, Vilfredo Pareto was an Italian economist. Pareto identified way back when that 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the people. Okay, so interesting. Now, you fast forward to today, one of the first things I ask my clients is, does 80% of the business come from 20% of the clients? And as you would know, Brett, most of our clients would say yes. And I say, okay, so if that's true, that means 20% of your business comes from 80% of your clients. So do you consistently invest 80% of your time on the 20% of the clients who generate 80% of your business? And, I mean, that's common sense, but interestingly, that is not a common practice. A lot of people feel that the vein of gold, uh, the untapped opportunity, lies with the numbers, the masses. So they end up spending 80% of their time reacting to the 80% of the clients who generate 20% of the business. And that's why they plateau. See, what we want to do is we want to create advocacy from the 20%. And so, so you have to service that 20% to convert the client into a referral-generating advocate. So instead of trying to go out and convince new people, the logic is to work with the people who are already convinced, who resemble your ideal client profile, and then show them how to convince people on your behalf, because they'll do an incredible job. And that's sort of at the heart and soul of our process and our philosophy. That's beautiful. So let's talk about, you know, whether it's the accountants you work with, the attorneys, the financial advisors, whatever it may be, um, you know, these professionals in any field, what do you find in right now are the biggest habits? And I'm a big habit and ritual guy. So what are the habits and rituals you're finding bring out the best in people? Well, it's interesting. When I do a gap analysis for a client, so before we tell a client to do anything, uh, before we give them any advice, we want to pop the hood and figure out where their gaps are. So we do a gap analysis. And I don't think in terms of strengths and weaknesses, most of our clients are really effective at what they do, but they plateaued. So the gap analysis is designed to identify six to ten gaps that are actionable, that they can be addressed within the next 90 to 180 days. And they generally reside in three areas. We want to help our clients decommoditize their value depersonalize their relationships and demystify how they are perceived and described. And when those issues can be addressed, it becomes very, very powerful in terms of how it can unlock that next level of productivity. So how do you do that? So, I mean, what's what's that process look like? So you don't just sit down, obviously, and, and demystify anything. And so how do you sit down is, is it, you know, a retreat? Is it goal planning strategy for a day, two days, three days? What's that look like? Well, most of the gap analysis interactions we have are done over the phone. I mean, we do mastermind sessions. We have deep dive consulting uh, deployments, but the gap analysis is often done over the phone. So the first thing around decommoditizing is helping our clients ensure that their clients 
focus on what the person is worth, not what they cost. Brett, it still boggles my mind that Blockbuster had a chance to buy Netflix. Now, if you think about that, remember when Netflix used to mail you a DVD. So you didn't have to go to a store. They would mail you the DVD, and then you'd send it back. But their vision yep. was to always stream online. But when, when Netflix was stumbling, Blockbuster, bricks and mortar, they had a chance to buy Netflix, and they said, no, we've got this. And soon thereafter, they were gone. They were just completely vaporized. And now look at Netflix today. So I look at a lot of individuals and say, okay, you need to consistently decommoditize yourself. That's engineered. And the way you do that is you, you look around, you differentiate, and you focus on what matters to a client. But you see, that's abstract. You have, to, you have to decommoditize and take that abstract value and make it conceptual. You know, the more, the more technology creeps into our lives, the more the human touch actually matters. But that has to be positioned properly. And that's what decommoditizing yeah, is really all about. I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I think there's so much, you know, there's the whole IQ versus EQ, right? And in my opinion, I mean, what's going to separate Again, whether it's the accountant or the, the financial advisor or the, or the salesperson, whatever they're selling out there, as more and more of the Amazons or, or this uh, other people try to take that over, that EQ is going to be critically important to our success. Couldn't agree more, and that is engineered. You know, if you think about it, okay, and this is the exercise I like to go through with one of my clients, is I simply say to them, I say, what is the most important factor about a, a relationship where there's advocacy? And, of course, the factor is trust. There has to be trust. And I completely agree. And I say, so if trust is so important, if I'm your client, what do I actually trust? This is where it gets interesting in the gap analysis because many people, the, the things they start listing off that their clients trust speak to their qualities and their skills and their intentions. So, Brett, let's just say you were a financial advisor, and I'm your client, and, I'm, and you ask me what I trust, and I say, well, I trust you. You're a great guy. You're smart. You care. You always put me first, and you service me very, very well, you and your team. And I'm not trivializing quality, skills, and intentions, but the problem is that's not proprietary. I can get that somewhere else. You know, the, the, the individual has to go deeper in terms of understanding and engineering what it is a client trust. So the exercise here is there's five C's to trust. Okay, so here are the five C's. There's credentials, there's consistency, there's congruency, there's chemistry, and then there's communication. So with those five C's, what we do is we lay out a plan that ensures the client actually understands and appreciates those five drivers. So if you think of credentials, okay, you've got the goods. That's a minimum requirement. In and of itself, that's not enough. I can get that somewhere else. Consistency, and I'm not talking about consistency of, of performance. It's consistency of behavior and consistency of the client experience. That's where practice management really kicks in. Congruency is I do what I say. When I set an expectation around how I'm going to conduct myself, I actually deliver. I don't overpromise and underdeliver. I am congruent. And 
If I consider myself as a consultant, I don't use salesmanship. I believe that my service is bought, not sold, and I'm congruent. So I attract a client. I don't chase them. Okay? So chemistry means I understand what's important to you. And that's a process that's professionalized. That's not just an intention. If you think about it, Brett, there's an acronym FORM that really is the glue around chemistry. So FORM speaks to family, occupation, recreation, and money. Well, money is a means to the end around your family investment legacy goals, your occupational interests, and your recreational aspirations. When I know what motivates you around your family goals, your, rec- your occupation, and your recreational interests, and I remind you that money is a means to those ends, I strengthen the chemistry I have with you because I know it's important to you. Now, credentials, consistency, congruency, and chemistry make you referable. But I mean, a lot of people are referable and yet don't get many referrals. And that's where communication kicks in. There has to be consistent communication where I articulate my value to you so you understand and appreciate what I do. You internalize that and then you can socialize it to someone else. And that's really what advocacy is about. So that is something that we draw out of the gap analysis that helps to decommoditize a relationship between one of our clients and one of their clients. And it works very, very effectively. Yeah, and I think the, the important thing is there that communication, that consistency. So, uh, again, I, I keep picking on the, the attorneys, the accountants. That's a you know, big following that we have from a listening standpoint in our, obviously, financial advisors um, around the country. And so, but when you think about that, you know, you hear sometimes 18 touches a year. You hear 12 touches a year. You hear four touches a year. I mean, what, what's the consistency there on what is enough and what is, uh, what is too much? Well, first of all, if you look at the word deserve, like when somebody says to me, how do I get more referrals? I say, well, do you deserve referrals? And they always say yes. And I say, well, look at the word deserve. It stems from the Latin words to serve. Your consistent approach to proactive service makes you referable. So our clients typically touch a client 18 to 32 times a year in various forms of communication over the course of the year. But the the tipping point isn't just from being referable. They have to articulate the concept of a referral. Now, here's where this is what separates the best from the rest right here. The best don't pitch the idea of a referral as a favor they're asking of their client. They position it as a service they're providing to the client. And there's a big difference there. So think about the advocacy. Yeah, it's huge. Because if you think about the word advocacy, okay, so Brett, if I'm an advocate for you, I don't introduce someone to you because I'm trying to help you grow your business. I feel I'm doing someone a disservice if I don't make the introduction. So I'm an advocate for you and your process, but I'm also an advocate for my friend. I go out of my way to make the introduction, and I don't expect anything. I expect nothing in return. Like, you don't have to ask me for a referral. You don't have to send me a Starbucks gift card after I make the introduction. That's not why I did it. I did it because I understand your value. I understand the unmet need of my friend based on what's going on in his life. I go out of my way to make the introduction. That is engineered through good communication. And that is a process that's very, very professional and very effective. So let's talk about uh, the circuit of success for a minute. Let's talk about attitude. When you hear the word attitude, Duncan, what comes to mind? Attitude is, I think, your outlook on life 
and it's your true north around your code of conduct. Um, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. Um, does your, you know, does your past, have you invested your past into the future? Like, I mean, your adversity and all of the different things that have occurred in your life, do they serve you or hurt you? You know, all of that. And it's your belief about investing yourself into others. I mean, I'm just making that up as I go, but that's really, I think, what, what defines attitude for me. Well, it's, it's funny. I'm smiling here because so attitude is the first one, right? I always say attitude. You're either a victim or you're a victor, right? So you're going you're gonna to rise above it or you're just going to, you know, set in the fetal position. But then the second one, and you just said the word, is belief, right? And so I have nine things that I believe in that you have to believe in to be successful, right? Believe Whether that's your, your faith, believe in God, believe in yourself, goal achievement, uh, annual planning, et cetera, right? So when you think about your beliefs that have made you successful throughout your career, what are those fundamental beliefs uh, that, you, that you've got? That's a great question. By the way, your core nine there, I completely aligned. And the one thing I will tell you, I mean, I, I, if you look at yin-yang, like from a spiritual perspective, yin-yang basically says to us is you need dark to appreciate the light. Like you need some cold to appreciate the warm. You need a storm to appreciate the calm. And I think that's why God gives us some adversity. Now, again, I've got my own limited experience of life, and I know there's a spectrum of experiences, but that is my belief. And part of my philosophy, I mean, if you go right back to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, written in 1776, where he talks about achieving what you want, but through the service of others, never at the expense of others. Like the premise is, do no harm, bring value. I mean, I look at America, I look at Western civilization and the alchemy that comes out of capitalism. You can achieve so much by delivering value where one plus one equals so much more than two. But again, the code of conduct has to be never at the expense of someone else. Do no harm. And so, so that's part of my belief. I like that. I was, I was watching a video yesterday of Jeff Bezos and, um, you know, the Amazon fame, and, and he talked about, you know, people so many times think about baseball, and they talk about getting singles and doubles. And he said, or you can strike out or you can hit a home run. And, and he took it a step further. He said, you know, but even if you hit a home run in baseball, you're capped, right? You're capped. The most you can get is four runs at one time, right? And he said, and that's what's great about in today's world is we're not capped. One plus one could equal a 1,000. But it's funny you say that because both of my kids are lifeguards, and they both make $16 an hour. And I told them how proud of them I am because, A, they're bringing value to their community, they're developing incredible skills, and now they're on the ladder. And I said $16 is on the ladder. Minimum wage is on the ladder. And I said they don't actually need to raise minimum wage. You can just climb the ladder. But then I started explaining how much the Prime Minister of Canada makes per hour. He's further up the ladder. How much the President of the United States makes an hour. He's on the ladder. And I've got clients who make $1,000 an hour. Every hour they're at work, they're making $1,000 an hour. There's no ceiling to the ladder. Just keep climbing, but bring value as you climb. It's a really powerful dynamic. I love it. Yeah, so let's talk about then the actions, right? That's the third rung of the, or the third circuit, if you will, in the circuit of success. So talk about the actions. What are the key things 
again, no matter what you do in the world, don't just focus on the financial advisor side, but what are the key things you got to do every single day to be successful? First of all, decommoditize. So clients focus on what you're worth, not what you cost. And drive with that with trust and engineer trust based on those five C's. Now, an extension of that is also to depersonalize the relationships, which means your clients are not just emphasizing on their relationship they have with you. They put as much value on your practice and your process as they do your, their relationship with you, the person. So if you look at the book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, and I mean, that book is so far ahead of its time because he would talk about the difference between working in the business and working on the business. So working in the business is trading your time for money based on delivering on your technical ability. You're not building something. You're basically selling something. Okay? Working on the business means every investment of effort that you make on your enterprise adds to the client experience, adds to the intellectual properties, and the enterprise value of your business. This is where we see our clients shift from organic growth, just through advocacy, to scalable growth. So scalable growth means it's not a book of business. It's an actual business. You're running your business like a business, and you've got everything documented based on your intellectual property, which means you could sell your business for an incredible profit and multiplier. You're, you, you could have a work-optional lifestyle, which means the business runs like a Swiss watch, and you don't have to be there every single day. And you could go out and buy new businesses, and there is immediate lift after the acquisition because of the vein of gold of untapped opportunity when you transition that business over to yours. That's, in essence, what depersonalizing means. And that's a huge driver and something we spend a lot of time on because, you know, again, as the old saying goes, the business is supposed to serve your life, not the other way around. And for many of our clients, it's their number one asset. We want to maximize it and make yeah. sure when the time comes to have that liquidity event, it's fully built out. So let's, let's turn now to value propositions. I know, I know you've probably got an answer for this, but, you know, today I've, I've been with a doctor today. I've been with a large, you know, concrete construction company today. I'm blessed to get to see a lot of great people, a lot of successful people day in and day out. And, and one thing that always comes up, so if, I, if I'm the construction guy and I'm saying, what's my value proposition to why my construction is better than that guy or gal's construction? What's the value proposition? Why is that so important? And this falls right into the category of demystifying your value. See, the number one objective is to differentiate so you don't swim in a pool of sameness. It's very, very key. And the mistake people make with their value proposition, their elevator speech, is they data dump what it is they do. So somebody says, so what do you do? And then they answer the question by data dumping. I do this, I do this, I do this. And the problem is everything you communicate is either a me too or it's a so what. A so what is just, well, it's all about you, so you're dismissing it. A me too is you're speaking to what a client wants, not what you do. That's such a huge distinction. Like I use this as a symbol. One of my favorite examples of a value proposition is, now, now first of all, you, you're in the business, so you know, and it still boggles your mind, I'm sure, that about 18 or 20 years ago, Steve Jobs had to borrow $150 million from Bill Gates to save Apple, right? You remember that? That's not very long ago. Oh, yeah. Yep. T today, Apple's got about $300 billion in cash, okay? So that's a pretty short window to go from circling the drain to being the most dominant company on the planet, okay? And as you know, the phoenix out of the ashes for Apple was the iPod. 
Well, when they launched iPod, they didn't introduce it with this long-winded technical data dump of how great the iPod is. The hook they used was very simple. All it said was, a thousand songs in your pocket. That's it, a thousand songs in your pocket. And you see, when people saw that, they said to themselves, I want that. I don't even know what it is, but I want it. You know, when I saw it, I just looked down at my Sony Discman on my belt that held nine songs, you know, beside my fanny pack, right? And I said, a thousand songs in my pocket, and I've got nine songs, songs on my belt? I want that. You see, it was bought, not sold. The premise is, it's not what you say, it's what they hear. What are they hearing in your value proposition? So the premise is, don't try to impress someone with what you do. Impress upon them with what they want and how you get them there. So for example, you think of a financial advisor, a wealth manager, okay? Their old value proposition would be, I'm a financial advisor, I help my clients achieve their financial goals. Pretty bland, you know, just describe 10,000 people. So then the advisor shifts that to, I'm part of a wealth advisory team for primarily for a small group of successful business owners who, among other things, aspire to that work-optional lifestyle. And we've developed and refined a process that puts all the pieces of that puzzle together. So look at the difference between the first value proposition and the second one. What's the difference? One projects scarcity, one's very professional, and one sifts out the real prospect from the NASA suspects and engages someone in the conversation. And most importantly, by saying, we've developed and refined a process, speaks to the proprietary nature of their value not the quality skills and intentions they have. So, again, not to simplify, Brett, but that's a distinction. Right, and I think it also gives a a, a shot of hope, right, and and it's inspiring, right, it's abundant. So I think also, too, you know, you talked about Apple, and, you know, everything they do is bought, not sold, right? I mean, here's a company, they don't don't do sales, they don't have, you know, 20% off, you know, Christmas, you know, week or whatever. It's, It's something that you want to be a part of. I think that's what we as business leaders all have to do is build something that everybody wants. Well, nobody walks into an Apple store and says, hey, can you sharpen my pencil or your pencil? Can you, can you lower the price of that phone to like the, the Google Pixel or the Motorola right. or the Samsung? They don't do that. You see, it's aspirational, as you said, and, and they position themselves so incredibly well. It's incredible that a company that big can still project a little scarcity and still be a magnet that attracts people instead of going out chasing them with discounts. Like I tell my clients all the time, never negotiate your value. If somebody says, hey, can you lower your price or lower your fees, you know, I want you to say, hey, I appreciate that, but we don't negotiate our value. Someone who lowers their fees to get your business, they're basically a broker. They're focused on salesmanship. They're coin-operated. They just focus on the business. That's not yeah. us. So let's talk about fear. So fear goes in the minds of lots of people, right? And so think about it from yourself for a second here. Is that How much fear have you put in through over your career into your mind of whether it's fear of failure, uh, you know, this isn't going to work, what am I thinking, right, all the negative self-talks. How much has that has gone on in your life? Well, I mean, that's just natural, right? That's the world of entrepreneurship, Um you know, it's a lonely existence sometimes. You're alone with your thoughts, and, you know, it's a perfect collection of uh, anticipation and apprehension. And personally, I read a book um, a while back called Only the Paranoid Survive, uh, written by Andy Grove, one of the founders of Intel, where he talked about the power of negative thinking. Where you need to be positive and optimistic, but 
there is a very positive power that can come from negative thinking. But you've got to let it serve you, not hurt you. Uh, and it, it's what keeps you humble. Humility is obviously important. Gratitude is incredibly important. And just ensuring that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves and to a point where we either have inertia, confidence, or even some delusions. Um, so, so listen, I'm an incredibly optimistic person. I have immense faith and spirituality uh, and gratitude. But every now and again, I do think when I do some scenario planning about some things that could not be so great, or I, I look back on periods that were a little bit dark, I just want it to serve me. And uh, that, that's sort of my approach to that. That's a great answer. And then the follow-up question is always, how many of the fears that you put in your mind come true to the magnitude that you actually put them in your mind to be? Man, it's, it's almost like you're spying on me when I have my interactions with my kids because I've asked <laughs> questions like that to them. Because, you know, it's, it's interesting. when you, As a parent, you, you're trying to invest yourself into your kids, right? Right. And um, sometimes they, they, they become the mentor to the protege. It's on what they mirror back to you. I believe, and this is just my belief, I don't even know if I'm right, but I, I believe that fears and apprehensions and anxiety, it's often born in the place between expectation and reality. And, and what I mean by that is if you think of cause and effect, like activity will determine productivity. When I have some fears or anxieties, I often just basically get back to work. And I, I do believe that I think that's where God lives in that, in that area, in those areas of fear and uncertainty, like spirituality. I think that's where beliefs in things way bigger than us are really brought to life. But I, I think the way I deal with it is I, I just get back to work. I just, I just get busy. I talk right. to clients. I refine my skills. I, I just get busy. You know, maybe exercise or do something productive or detach even. And I think gratitude, gratitude is a great bookend to ambition, and it helps us manage those fears and anxieties and uncertainties. I don't know. I mean, these are great questions, Brett. Yeah, thank you. And I think you know, most of our, our guests, and I think you would agree with this, is they rarely, if ever, come true, though. Like, they don't explode like we think they're going to explode, right? We build it up in our mind. This is going to be terrible. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall flat on my face. Oh, that was tough, but, you know, hey, we survived, and we made it happen, and now we're moving on to the next thing, right? They don't actually become that big of a deal. Well, most don't. Some do, and some have the ability to become real. But I think we do give them way more energy and attention than they probably deserve. And, you know, if you look at Stephen Covey, who said, begin with the end in mind, part of that is sort of looking into the future and saying, this fear I have today, is this going to be consuming me 60 days from now? I think the probability of it consuming me in 60 days is pretty low. I mean, some things do manifest, and some things do become yep. pretty real and, and not great, but most don't. I guess that's my take. Yep, absolutely. So, Duncan, tell us, uh, where can our guests find more of uh, Dun Duncan McPherson? Where can they uh, find you? Social media, website? Well, my favorite place to virtually hang out is LinkedIn. So uh, if you just look for me, Duncan McPherson, on LinkedIn, I should pop right up. And uh, it's a great community. So I post stuff there. Um, virtually every day. From the field, day. right? Yeah, from the field, exactly. So uh, my travels, uh, I pop in little videos of what's going on, and I share things uh, in terms of what my clients are doing or achieving, and that's a really good place to start. And then, you know, I've got that book, as you know, the Advisor Playbook, which has been pretty well received. So that's probably, if you want to go a little deeper, that's probably the, the next best step to take there. 
Awesome. Well, we will put that in the show notes for sure and uh, make sure we send some guests that way because uh, you've got a lot of great stuff. And, and finding Duncan on LinkedIn, that's where we connected. I mean, he is, uh, you know, he reaches out back out to his guests, got a great team uh, of people that will also reach out. So I think it, it's cool that you're not only on there, but you're interacting with uh, with people that are that are following you and, and, and chatting with you. Well, Duncan, sure. any, any, any closing thoughts you want to share with our listeners? First of all, I appreciate all of you uh, investing your time to see this through and, and listen to this. Um, it, it basically says that the clay is soft, and you know that there's an opportunity to refine and optimize what you do, and uh, that's important skin in the game to invest your time here. So thank you. And, of course, Brett, thanks for uh, giving of yourself, and I love your positioning. The circuit of success is a neat uh, and unique way to project your value i find that very fascinating and uh you're obviously an enlightened guy you ask some really great questions so thanks very much absolutely well thanks for being with us duncan and uh, again for those of you that want to follow him check him out on linkedin we'll have it in the show notes and thanks again for listening to the circuit of success podcast tune in next week for another episode of the circuit of success with brett gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm. 